All right. Well, this morning, um, before Todd comes up, he asked that I would read Isaiah 53 over our time this morning. Now, Isaiah 53 in its entirety, and it um, says this. You can follow along in your Bible or you can listen along either way. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we did not value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers. He did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. But he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord is pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished after his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I give him the uh, many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels." This is God's word. Thanks, BJ. My the sounds coming out of the speaker. Okay, cool. Well, good morning, you guys. Like BJ said, my name is Todd. I'm one of the elders here at Transform Ministries. Um, I don't usually teach, but every once in a while, I get the honor of getting to come up here and, and share God's word with you guys. Um, so before we begin, uh, let's just, uh, I'm just going to pray over our time. Uh, Father God, I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you that we can study at your feet, Father God. Uh, Lord, I just thank you for Travis and Becky and their heart for, for you and for your mission, Lord. God, I pray you would bless them. God, I pray you'd bless our time in the word that, um, Anything spoken wouldn't be from a man, but would come from you, Father, that you, your Holy Spirit would speak to all of us this morning, Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this morning, it's a bit of a different morning, as you may have noticed if, if this is your first time or you're visiting. Um, 
like I said, I'm not usually up here. Usually Mike's up here, but he's in Thailand right now with uh, Trevor doing some mission support here. And then since we've had Travis and Becky support, uh, come giving their talk as well, we thought it would be a good Sunday to take a break from our usual study through the Gospel of Mark and talk about why we do this. Why do we care about mission? Why has the church for the last 2,000 years put time and focus and resources into mission? And why do we encourage you to do the same? Why do we as Christians see it as our responsibility to share our faith with the rest of the world. So this morning we're going to look at the passage of Scripture that orients us in that direction, that teaches us what to do and how to do it. We're going to look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Um, so if you're not aware of Matthew, it's one of the four Gospels, along with the aforementioned Mark and also Luke and John, that serve as biographies to the life of Jesus. These are four different narratives that ultimately tell the same story. Um, you can think of them as the same picture taken at four different angles. So, as a result, even though we're about halfway through Mark, I'll be spoiling the end of Mark. Um, I apologize. Spoiler warning. Uh, you've had 2,000 years to read it, though, so if you're not caught up. Um, it's like Netflix. You can binge it all. It's not Disney Plus where it comes out week to week. Um, but, spoiler warning, at the end... Jesus dies. The narratives in the four Gospels tell us that Jesus is betrayed. He is arrested at nighttime. He is taken to a kangaroo court where the guilty verdict has already been decided before he's even entered the room. He sends to death on a cross. He died on that cross, and he was buried in a tomb. But that is also not the end. So I'm spoiling all of it. Jesus rose from the grave. He came back from the dead, and in so, he defeated death and took a victory over our sin. Relationship through his sacrifice was restored so that anyone who puts their faith in him will be able to walk with God just as Adam once did in the garden. Church, Jesus is risen. What seemed like a defeat turned out to be the ultimate victory over death and sin and the enemy. This should excite us. This should energize us. Because as his followers, if he defeated death and he lives inside us, then what can happen to us? Death is dead. As Romans 8 say, what then are we to say of these things? If God is with us, who is against us? We will have eternal life with Christ that follow him. And Peter also understands this in Acts, in Acts chapter 5. After they brought him in, uh, that is the religious leaders, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin and the high priest. Didn't we strictly order you, not, order you not to teach in his name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. They were guilty of his blood, but... <laughs> Peter and the apostles reply, We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witness of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. 
And after this, how do the religious leaders respond? They flog them. They violently punish them. But later, verse 41 says that the, the apostles went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted as worthy to be treated shamefully on, the bath of, on behalf of the name. Rejoicing that they were beaten on behalf of Jesus Christ. The truth of the gospel and Jesus' victory over death means that even in pain, we can rejoice in our Savior Jesus. It means that there is no war to be fought. The war is already won and death lost. Which is why Jesus instructs his followers not to fight battles, but to announce his victory. And sometimes I think we get that confused. Sometimes I think uh, we think ourselves as an invading army. And, and if you've seen those old pictures from World War II of the soldiers about to storm the beaches of Normandy and what they were thinking about, and sometimes I think we position ourselves in our mindset to think that we're about to go into a bloody war. But the war was already won. This is not D-Day. This is V-E Day. This is the day where victory is proclaimed. And every day, victory can be and is proclaimed. And Jesus' instruction on how to do that is where we'll be picking up. So that's Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. I'll read the first couple of verses The eleven disciples, Judas excluded, traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. So, after his resurrection, Jesus uh, directs the disciples to go to a mountain in Galilee. None of the gospel writers really specify about which mountain it was or specifically where they were. Um, We can imagine it was probably in a place where they often met and were naturally familiar with. Um, for instance, if you got breakfast with the same person you know, twice a month uh, for several years, and it was at the same restaurant, um, and they, said, they called you one day and said, let's go get breakfast, you wouldn't have to specify where. You would know where it was. So it, it's probably along those sorts of lines. But there is significance in the fact that they meet in a mountain, meet at a mountain. Um, mountains in many ancient religious cultures, including ancient Israel, are often considered places where heaven and earth overlap, where God's space and, and human space uh, meet and mix. Um, which is why we see a lot of stuff going on on mountains in, in the Gospels. Teaches, Jesus teaches a sermon on the mount. His transfiguration happens on a mountain. Jesus is crucified on top of a hill, which we don't, um, they don't really differentiate between hills and mountains like we do. Uh, in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah both meet the living God on a mountain. Um, the temple that in which they worship, in which God is supposed to be seated in the Old Testament, is also on a mountain. Even in Genesis, the Garden of Eden is, de- is described of having four rivers flow out of it. Which direction do rivers flow? Downhill. So Jesus is positioning himself geographically and culturally for this next statement in verse 18. It says, Jesus came near to them and said, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to Jesus. Not, not will be given later, 
not given but with a few exceptions, not given but with a few restrictions, not given so long as you behave yourself. All authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. All authority in heaven, meaning not just over the angels, but all the inhabitants of the spiritual realm, including the enemy and the demons that would cause chaos and destruction, are under his boot. All authority on earth, meaning not just the land and the sea, but over everyone and everything in it. Meaning, if Jesus has all authority on earth, how much authority does that leave for Caesar? None. Jesus is king. Not Caesar, not our boss, not a, not a president. Not arguing for some form of Christian anarchism. God does give limited and temporary authority to governing bodies, and Scripture instructs us to obey them, and we should respect them. Um, but I, I would use the analogy of in the sports world, in a specific game, you have a referee that has authority over that game and over the players of that field and can use that authority. But in the league, ultimately, there's a commissioner that has ultimate authority over all the referees and can remove those referees if one of them steps out of line. So, too, are the kings of today are simply agents serving the will of God and can be removed when God sees fit. So, it begs the question, how much hope do we put in our temporary authorities versus the permanent and universal King Jesus. This next election needs to go really well. So if anybody comes across me that disagrees with my opinions, I'm going to shout them down and belittle them and, and, and make them feel like idiots for thinking the way they think. Or I really need to get this raise next year, so I'm going to cut corners. I'm going to step on people. I'm going to take advantage of people who don't know what, what I'm selling them to make more money and please my boss. Is that the attitude of somebody submitted to King Jesus? Is that our attitude sometimes? Now, when we do appeal to the authority of Jesus and insist that it is currently in effect, the question is always raised, well, look at the world. Does it really look like Jesus is in charge? There's wars and death, and, and just turn on the news and you can see Jesus isn't in charge. And one's instinct may tend to agree with that. But however, while Jesus can exert his authority over the earth to set everything right, he has chosen to relent, desiring people, desiring that people will willingly choose him. A day is coming when every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess. But because of his desire with relationship for us, he is patiently waiting for that day. N.T. Wright explains it this way. Um, the claim is not that the world is already completely as Jesus intends it to be. The claim is that he is working to take it from where it was, under the rule not only of death, but of corruption, greed, and every kind of wickedness and to bring it, by slow means quick, under the rule of his life-giving love. And now how is he doing this? Here is the shock. Through his followers. The project only goes forward insofar as Jesus' agents, the people he has commissioned, are taking it forward. He has chosen, although he doesn't have to, 
to demonstrate his authority by using us, by working his Holy Spirit through us. So where there's a follower of Jesus who's turning the other cheek after they've been slapped, or going the extra mile when only one was demanded, when a Christian is feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, or suffering for the sake of others, the authority of Jesus is on display. We acknowledge his authority when we follow his commandments. Just as John 14 says, the one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father. I also will love him and reveal myself to him. Oh, look, verse 19 has another commandment for us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go, go and make disciples. Does that mean be kind of rude to your waitress and then leave a tract with your tip? By the way, if you are going to leave a tract, leave a tract with your tip, not as your tip. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Some people have worked in the food service. Um, does, Does this mean to mention under your breath to a stranger that you're a Christian and then run away before you ever have a chance to talk to them? Um... By the way, these are all things I've been guilty of. So if it feels like I'm trying to make you feel guilty too, I'm not trying to actively hurt anybody. Maybe convict as I've been convicted. Um, but these are things I've done and seen be done. Go and make disciples. Go, leave, get out of here. For real. Exactly, Angelica. <laughs> um, that was a joke. Um, <laughs> Get in the community or a community. Invest time, invest resources, invest yourself. Get to know the people around you and make disciples. And notice the word disciple because it's different from the word convert. Disciple and convert are different things. A convert is just somebody who says yes. A disciple is a student. A disciple would basically live with a rabbi. They would spend as much time as possible learning as much as possible. Making a disciple is a lifetime commitment to that person. If you're going to share the gospel with somebody and hope that they choose Jesus, you need to be ready to spend the next 18 to 20 years of your life with that person. But sometimes I think we, and when I say we, I mean more like me, um, we're more, we're more like my, my two-year-old son. Uh, my son loves playing catch. He loves throwing footballs. He, he loves it. I love playing catch with him. He's little. He has a football that's his size, but he insists on using the full-size one, so he doesn't catch it very well. So when he does catch one, it's really exciting and really cute. Um, but however, when he does want to play catch, he does not always come up to you and say, play catch with me, please, which he can't say. He just doesn't. Instead, he walks up to you with said football in hands, and whether you're looking or not, and whether you're holding a hot cup of coffee or not, he just hucks it. <laughs> and then he's like, why are you upset, Dad? With your black eye and your hot coffee all over your white shirt. And sometimes we can be like that when we, when we want to share the gospel with people. We spit it out quickly to a person who wasn't even expecting it. They weren't even thinking 
about having a conversation. Oftentimes, they can be a stranger. Again, things I've done. If you haven't done it, this isn't for you. I apologize. But um, this is just me spilling out all my convictions. Um, I don't discourage you from going to a stranger if you feel the Holy Spirit calling you to, then you should do it. We should all be willing to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit, but the point of making a disciple is to invest diligent time in a person. But that's kind of the hard part here, is, is do I talk to this person? Do I, uh, do I go meet a stranger? Do I follow... Uh, somebody across the world or across the country um, to share the gospel with people who I don't speak the language. These are hard questions. This is kind of a difficult commandment to think about. Um, you know, you think of other commandments, don't murder, don't cheat on your wife. Hey, got those, I'm doing good. Um, even after Jesus raises the bar on those standards, the, the bar is still visible and, and we still understand it and the standard is still universal for everybody. But what does it mean for each one of us to go and make disciples? That could be different for all of us. For some of us, it does mean leaving the country. For Travis, it means flying a plane. Does that make him better than you? Yes. But <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> I picture him wearing like aviators with Highway to the Danger Zone in the background and that sort of thing um, and growing a sick mustache. Um, it might, for some of us, mean leaving the country. For others, it might mean showing up to work 30 minutes early and having coffee with somebody. My point is, sometimes I think we can feel pressure to close the deal, to win as many souls as possible. I've heard this passage taught in such a way where it's kind of where, excuse me, I've heard this passage taught in, taught in such a way where it makes us Christians look like used car salesmen. And that is such a depraved way to describe or look at the gospel. But that's how it's, I've been taught to read it at times. That's how I've seen other people teach to read it at times. To be a disciple maker is to be diligent in your calling, patient and kind, without envy. It's not to be boastful or rude. Are you guys picking up what I'm putting down? Love is to love people. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude, not self-seeking, not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That is to be your orientation towards the people that God has put in your life. It's to love others because Christ first loved you. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Of all the nations. This is the first time we see Jesus moving his ministry from Israel to the whole world. For most of his ministry, he mostly spent time in Jewish communities, with a few exceptions throughout, and a few other hints throughout the Gospels that um, the message would eventually be for the whole world. But here is the directive that Jesus wants everyone from every place. As Revelation says, Revelation 5, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open it. It seals. Because you are slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and every language and every per people and nation. 
You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. The gospel is for everyone, which is why we give support to international ministries. This is why Mike and Tyler are on the other side of the planet supporting a, a crew of people to go and share the gospel elsewhere. But everybody, for those of us who are not called internationally, for those of us that are called right here, everyone still means everyone. Not just people in our faraway land, people in our lives right now. People you don't like. That guy at work who gives you a hard time. That repairman who who gouged you because he knew you were desperate. That family with the kids that are a bad influence on your kids. Jesus wants them too. And he wants you to want them too. He wants us to make them to disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism does not save. It does not make us Christians. It is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. It is an outward sign of an inward transformation, a publicly pledging yourself to God above all else. To be a disciple is to be baptized. It is a sign of death, burial, and resurrection that we have died with Christ and are now a new creation. When you are baptized, you make the rest of the church witness to your commitment to Jesus, thus giving your brothers and sisters in the church permission to walk with you in obedience to our Lord Jesus. Moving on in verse 20. Teaching them to observe, this is still Jesus speaking, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Notice the order of operations. Make the disciple, baptize the disciple, teach the disciple. Make the disciple, baptize, teach. I think we get our wires crossed here sometimes. Sometimes I think it's just easier to manage bad behavior, so we moralize. We say things, we say that being a Christian is about being a good and nice person. You never see an R-rated movie, you never listen to music where everybody in the band wears all black. Um, And there are morals that we hold up to, that Jesus holds us up to. There are things he taught us to do, but if Jesus isn't Lord, there's no point in following those rules. Why should we obey the commandments of someone we don't, don't believe we need to obey? Of someone we don't believe is Lord? Someone we don't believe has all authority on heaven and earth? Because he is Lord, we need to lead with Jesus and his love and his sacrifice. This was the mistake of the Pharisees. Um, the Pharisaical order was actually started on a good instinct. After the Babylonian exile and return, um, a group of pious Jews looked to their history and said, you know, God punished us for disobeying God's commandments. And that was a good observation because that's exactly what happened. But instead, what, what they did is they decided to overcompensate. They analyzed and overanalyzed. They extrapolated the law to its fullest extent, excuse me, and made it so that they were so far from disobeying the law in their own mind that we would never, that they would never get punished by God again. In other words, they said, if the line is over here, we're going to come paint our own artificial line over here so we never get to that point. 
But the fact of the matter is they began making this line the law. They began saying that this is where God says the line is, and they fell into legalism. And what do we get by the time Jesus comes on the, on the scene? Whitewashed tombs. People who look great on the outside, but were dead on the inside. People who are so concerned with following the arbitrary rules that they've set, they never stop to ask whether or not they actually loved God or not. Whether or not they actually cared about what he said or not. Church, how have we done with that? How has our response been, both personally and corporately? I think this is something that in the last century we've gotten wrong and that we need to correct. Our concerns were whether Lucy and Ricky, an actual married couple, both on TV and real life, slept in the same bed or not on screen. We burned books, we burned CDs that we deemed appropriate. And then we never actually cared to ask whether the kids whose stuff we were burning cared about Jesus or not, how they felt about Jesus. And now millennials and Gen Z are the least generate are the least churched generations in American history. Do you think we did more of the proclaiming the name of Jesus thing, or do you think we did more of the moralizing thing? This is not meant to shame anybody of a certain generation. I know it might sound like that. I'm 31, so I'm I'm in the, one of those younger generations. Um, but regardless of age, position, where we are, we need to be able to look at these scriptures and apply them to ourselves before we can do any of this. Before we can make disciples, we have to be good disciples. Before we can teach, we have to be teachable. Because nevertheless, teaching is part of the Great Commission. As I said before, disciple-making is supposed to be long and consistent, time well and diligently spent with another person, leading them in the ways of Jesus as we learn and grow ourselves. And finally, in the last half of verse 20, Jesus says, Remember, I am with you to the end of the age. Jesus' final remarks are encouragement. He is always with us. This is significant. Remember who he's talking to. I kind of glazed over verse 17. You may have noticed. It says, When they, speaking of the disciples, saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Some of them doubted. Remember everything he said and all that it means. And he said all these things to people who still weren't completely sure. He gave these instructions to imperfect, flawed humans who even while witnessing the Lord raised from the dead still weren't 100% on board. He gave out his marching orders to men who had just very recently if you just read a few chapters back, failed him all to different degrees. In other words, he gave these instructions to people with the same weaknesses, the same fears as you and I do. He gave this command to people like us, weak, flawed individuals. He entrusted them with this duty and likewise now entrusts us. And if you are doubtful about your ability and not sure about this great commission, and you think yourself a failure, you are probably right. But he is with us, church. He will be with us till the end of the age. We have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. 
with that, all of our weaknesses and failings are simply opportunities for God to show us his strength. As 2 Corinthians 12 says, Paul, speaking of the Lord after praying for a, a thorn to be removed from his side, God replied, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will gladly boast all the more about my weakness so that Christ's power may reside in me. Worship team, you can come on up. My prayer is that we would all lean on the Spirit of God and ask Him for His perfection. And that His Holy Spirit would empower all of us in this little church to go change the world. Whether that's locally or internationally. That we would be able to send more and more people out of the country that we would be able to send more and more people to go plant churches. That communities here in Kootenai County, thanks to the power of the Holy Spirit using his people, would be radically transformed. That this baptismal and every other baptismal in this community would have to get used every single week because of the amount of people coming to Jesus. That we would be disciples that make disciples that make disciples. Father, I thank you again for your word. I thank you that you want us, that you've chosen us as, as your agents in the world, Father. Even though you could do it all at once, you so desire for relationship with us that you want to use us. Lord, I pray you would use us. I pray you would use us mightily, Lord, that the Spirit of God would fall on us and that um, we would be known for your love, Father. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.